Good morning, everybody. Um, it's a privilege for me to be here and to uh, speak to you concerning these matters. If there's anything that I want to accomplish, we have much to accomplish. But if there's anything that I want to accomplish with you, it's to renew your hope in the power of the Scriptures. There's nothing like the Holy Scriptures. And often, for those of us who have been converted for a few years, uh, we tend to forget those kind of things. So it was my joy and my privilege to have to go back to some rudimentary matters um, in order to be able to uh, speak to you this morning and to recapture some of the initial joy that I had when I came to understand these truths. So, if you're old in the faith or you, or you are young in the faith, I'm hoping this Lord's Day, certainly through our interaction together, but also through uh, the preaching of God's Word, that your uh, hope would be renewed in Holy Scriptures. So, this morning we're going to look at the biblical basis for counseling. I noticed when I looked on the website, you already have a course uh, on the Holy Scripture, a systematic theology course with regard to the authority uh, and sufficiency of Holy Scripture, so I'm not going to repeat most of that. If you haven't been into that course, I would suggest that you go into that course. There is much, much to learn in that course. And although it might come across uh, in systematic theological categories, if you can get the jargon, if you can get the jargon and get past that and understand really what's been taught in those classes, I would encourage you to do so. This isn't going to be jargon. This isn't going to be jargon. So with respect to the uh, biblical basis for counseling, Christians basically have three views of counseling. Three views of counseling. And the first view is that counseling is everything. That counseling is everything. So if you look at the uh, literature for graduate schools in psychology and counseling, and sociology, and all those kinds of uh, majors, you'll find that that is one of the biggest money makers in higher education and in undergraduate education. Everybody wants to be a counselor. Everybody wants to be a counselor. So I looked up some literature with regard to intake, student intakes in graduate classes. Everybody they said, wants to be a counselor. So out of one school, there were 500 applicants. And out of those 500 applicants, 20 were picked. So if you look at the broad, not only secular schools, but you also look at Christian schools, you'll see that they are broadening the scope of their education, and psychology is one of those fields. Now, I don't want to badmouth psychology. Okay, there is a legitimate discipline for psychology, but it's not in the area of counseling and psychoanalysis. Scientific psychology is a proper and a worthwhile discipline for you to be engaged in. So with respect to counseling then, there are some people that view counseling as everything. Everything. The second view is that some folks view counseling as nothing. I just read... In the Moody Monthly, I'm saying I just read in the Moody Monthly, maybe about six or eight months ago, I read in month, Moody Monthly that pastors shouldn't be involved in counseling, that the job of the pastor is to preach and to, pe to, preach and to teach from the pulpit, 
and that if he does his work well, then there will be no need for the pastor to do any counseling in the church. I would suggest to you that that exactly the opposite should be the case. If the pastor is preaching and teaching diligently from the word of God, then his counseling room should be full. Nevertheless, the past president of the National Association of Evangelicals says this, counseling, it's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. It's dirtying. You don't need to prepare. You don't need to be prayer, prepare. After counseling, I'd go home tired and I would be completely and utterly unsatisfied with what went on. I just don't think God would have pastors do this kind of thing. And again, the repeated refrain, if your preaching is biblical, you give the same information in a sermon as you do in counseling, so why not preach to a thousand people instead of just talking to one in your counseling office? So that's the idea then that counseling is nothing. Counseling is something. Counseling is something. The first one, that counseling is everything, I would suggest to you is unbiblical. The second one, counseling is nothing, that is just as unbiblical. Counseling is something. It is not the ministry of the church, but it is a ministry of the church. Public proclamation of the word in preaching, to be sure, you preach to the people of God as a whole. But counseling is just simply the private application of the word of God to an individual or to individuals. It doesn't accomplish the same thing. It doesn't accomplish the same thing. So it can be difficult for ministers who are engaged in preaching when all the congregation wants is, oh, well, we want application. We want application. Well, yeah, I know you want application, but from that side of the pulpit, giving you application can, can be quite a difficult thing. If I might give you an example. When I was a rookie, I knew Greek, and I knew Hebrew, and I knew this, and I knew that, and so I got in the pulpit, and I preached from Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands loving your wife, and I went through all the theology and all that good and juicy stuff. And then because I knew my congregation wanted application, I made application. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. Yeah? Apply that. Husbands, I think you should buy your wives a dozen roses. I mean, how safe is that? Monday morning, I get a call. Pastor, my wife's run off. She's run off? Why did she run off? Well, I listened to your sermon yesterday about, cry, about loving your wife like Christ loved the church, and I gave her a dozen roses, and she ran off. My Greek and Hebrew really didn't help at that point. <laughs> So I went over to see the fella and said, why did your wife run off when you gave her a dozen roses? Would anybody run off here if your husband gave you a dozen roses? She might drop over. <laughs> might drop over. <laughs> anyway, to make a long story longer, I found out 
after visiting this girl in Iowa, that every time he had committed adultery in the past, he bought her a dozen roses. So here is me making application from the Word of God from behind the pulpit. It's applicatory. Is it biblical? Well, in principle, it's biblical, but in the particular circumstance that you, that this person found herself in, it was completely unbiblical for him to do that. So go easy on the minister with regard to this application stuff. It's not as easy as you think it is. And if you would read the Scripture and search the Scripture, then you have the Holy Spirit just as much as he does, and you can read just as much as he can, but surely he can guide you in the way of truth and righteousness. So counseling is something. But the minister doesn't counsel from the pulpit. So what does the Bible teach about counseling then? The Bible teaches, first of all, that the pastor is to counsel. Counsel is kind of an unfortunate word because we're so infiltrated with a secular idea of what counseling is and what a client is and how that creates dependency on the counselor and the counselor. We want to really disassociate ourselves from that. So I'll, I'll flip between shepherding and counseling, if you can uh, track me while I do that. The pastor has the responsibility of counseling the flock. But as he feels the weight of that calling upon him, he does not shoulder that responsibility alone. So for those of you who are elders in the church, you too are called, like the pastor, to shepherd the flock of God. If you are an office bearer in the church, whether you're a deacon or you're an elder or you're the minister, then you are called by the Lord God of the church to counsel the flock. So if you have your Bibles there, turn with me to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. And we will look at verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So the context for that verse is that Jesus has just ascended to the heavenlies. And he has been granted the Holy Spirit. He has been given the Holy Spirit by virtue of his request. And the Father has granted the Lord Jesus' request to give the Holy Spirit and to send that out to the church. And that those gifts are pastors and teachers and evangelists. And the specific calling that they are given is to do the work of the kingdom. That is to say that they are to equip the saints, that's you, they are to equip the saints to do the work of the kingdom. So depending on what translation you have here, some of the words, I think you have the ESV, and there are various translations that, that uh, translate this particular word differently, but it has the same overall force. The King James Version of the Bible there speaks of a perfecting. 
for the perfecting of the saints. And that means that this fledgling church and people who are coming into this fledgling church have been dominated by sin. And they have former patterns of life. And just because you come to Jesus doesn't mean to say you're A-OK at the end of the day. You bring the garbage into church. So my practical theology teacher said, when I told him that my church was growing, he said, great, you've got ten times more sin than you did before. But the point of that is that where sin is, grace much more abounds. And the Lord God has granted us and equipped men to do the work of the kingdom, that is, equipping the saints. So the idea is that in this fledgling church, with folks coming into the church, that is, Gentiles and Jews coming into the church, they they have a life that has been dominated by sin, sinful patterns in their life. If you look at Hebrews 11.3, you see uh, the use of the same word there, equipping. Uh, Some texts have prepared. I think the ESV has created. But again, it's the same word that's used in the Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 passage. So the idea there is God, in the beginning, he spoke. And by the power of his word, he created that which was not and brought it into being. And so redemption, that is salvation, has its parallel in that. The church now, by the power of God's word, has been brought into being. He's been brought into being. And just as he prepared the world by the power of his word, in bringing it into being, so by the power of the word, he is preparing the church now with that very same word. Luke 6.40 Luke 6.40, again there, I'm just drawing that to your attention because it's the same word. The idea is fully trained. And if you need to be fully trained, it means that to some degree or other, you are in need of training. You are in need of training. But you will not be greater than your teacher. The same idea once more, if I might draw your attention. Mark 1.16-19, through 19, you have there Jesus... He's walking by the Sea of Galilee and he sees the fishermen and the fishermen have holes in their nets. And the text says that they are mending their nets. They're mending their nets. It's the same word in Ephesians, in Hebrews, in Luke as it is here in Mark. The idea is that their nets are incomplete. In this particular case, the nets have holes in. The nets are not functioning how it is that they are supposed to function. So Jesus is using the scriptures then speak of that word preparing, equipping to do the work of the kingdom. And and it is specifically given to the work of pastors and elders. So when you look at these verses together, and we've just kind of rushed through them and not done justice to them, if we bring what we're thinking here over to Ephesians and we're looking at the body of Christ, we can see that the body of Christ needs to be equipped. It needs to be equipped because the church is going to go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's a fledgling church. 
And so God has given these men in the church to do the equipping and to do the training because presently the church is not functioning how it is that it should function in the church. It's got holes in the nets, if you will. So the pastor then, he is called to mend the nets, if I might steal that analogy there, so that the saints can go about doing the work of the kingdom. So the pastor in church, he is not to be found cutting the grass. He's not to be found vacuuming or cleaning the nursery out or running the copy machine or cleaning. That is not his calling in the life of the church. He is primarily a preacher of the word and in that preaching, the nets of the people in church are mended And as they begin to hear and are quickened by that preaching of the word, they see that they have not loved the Lord their God as they ought and that they are often caught in sin. And it's there that the pastor has hands-on, one-to-one experience in, in helping you mend your nets so that you can be equipped to do the work of the kingdom. 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2 there. I can parallel that with Acts 20, 28. Acts 20, 28 is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. He was at Ephesus probably more than he was anywhere else. He was a church planter. And I think he spent somewhere in the neighborhood of about three years planting churches. So when we hear what he says to the Ephesian elders, it's a pretty good indication that we ought to listen to him. He's telling them what their job description is. And he's telling them to take heed because of what's going to happen. Take heed because there'll be wolves that come into the church. And then he tells the Ephesian elders that for three years, night and day, in tears, he counseled them. Imagine that. For three years, night and day, he went from door to door And he counseled his people. He was functioning according to the minister and the calling of God in his life. Psalm 23. You can do a little bit of work here. Psalm 23. For those of us who have grown up in the church, that is a familiar passage to be sure. And it brings us comfort. And so it should because... That is why it is written. So if you turn to Psalm 23 here, I would like you to tell me what responsibility the shepherd has amongst the flock of God. What's his calling? What's his responsibility? What does the Lord God say to the minister is his responsibility to this particular sheep, to you? I won't bite like your pastor said. Pardon? He leads. He protects. Good. Yes, he restores. He gives you rest. He feeds. Mm -hmm. Somebody else said something? He comforts. He's with, yes, he's with the sheep. 
through the valley of death? It's not that he has all the answers, is it? But wouldn't you love to have a minister that does that? I'm not suggesting that he doesn't by any means. But wouldn't you love to have that? To somebody to stick by you and to walk with you, to feed you and to restore you and to lead you and to bring you comfort. And you don't expect him to have all the answers either. But it's nice to have somebody with you. Anything else? Yeah, what does that mean? Yes. The staff. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so you see the double function there. Not only does it keep wild wolves away, but it protects you. Anything else? Yes. Uh, depending on who you are, you may already know the Lord, but if I might speak to the point in particular, the minister is the representative of the Lord here in the church. So we say he's the vicar of Christ. And if you come to the rest of the conference and on Monday, you'll hear all about that too. So I'm just leaning, I'm putting some breadcrumbs down so you can, you can come to the rest of the conference. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, he prepares the table before you in the midst of his enemies, that the Lord is with you and you will not fear. These are things that the scripture promises you and that God has equipped the church for. So you already have it in principle. It's a matter of the elders and the deacons and the minister realizing what it is and who it is that Christ has created the church to be. You have all the necessary resources here in church. The question is, are we reading and understanding and are we applying the scriptures in the way that God would have us do that for his people? Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6. We have here a little more of a specified job description. By the way, would you like a job description like Pastor Dan? No, I didn't think you would. And if you think Psalm 23 is a tough job description, look at Ezekiel 34 there, 1 through 6. You have here the work of a shepherd. Okay? He strengthens the sick. He strengthens the sick. He binds up the broken. Strengthens the sick, binds up the broken. He brings back the lost sheep. He brings back the lost people. So if Pastor Dan has to go to Iowa to get you, Pastor Dan has to go to Iowa to get you. You're his sheep. He is responsible for you. Seeking those who have gone astray, 
Oh, you're kidding. Pastor Dan's going to come and see us? I don't want anything to do with Pastor Dan. Yes, you do. He is your shepherd. And he is responsible for presenting you complete in Christ. How about that for a job description? You can't pay him enough for that. Presenting you complete in Christ. So, if you've run off and Pastor Dan and the others come looking for you, then when he's walking up the, when he's walking up the path, don't just flicker the curtains and then lock the door. So when he knocks at the door, you're not going to have anything to say to him. He's coming there in response to his obedience to the Word of God. He's coming to mend He's coming to mend the nets and to restore you back to the fellowship of believers. That's his job. And when he comes, he comes as the representative of Christ on earth. Now, who would shut the door on Jesus? Anybody? Then you don't shut the door on the minister. As difficult as it might be to face him, and for him to face you, he is there for your benefit and for God's glory. Yes. Okay, go, going back to your question of would you like to have that job description? <laughs> yeah. Isn't there a significant parallel there for parents as their job description is what you've been saying? Yes, absolutely. The difference is that the elders are, have been given the keys of the kingdom. So what the elders do in church with you is bound in heaven. Whatever is bound in heaven is bound on earth, and whatever is bound in earth is bound in heaven. They have the keys to open up and close the doors of the kingdom. So they have an official capacity. That doesn't mean to say there isn't a great deal of overlap between what parents do in the home with their children and what ministers do in the church. Yeah. Any other questions? I'm kind of flying through this stuff, but if you have questions, don't hesitate to, to raise your hands like this gentleman. Okay. So strengthening the sick, bind up the broken, bring back the lost people, seek those who have gone astray, feed the flock. That is the ministry of counseling. And it is your privilege and your right as a child of God to expect that from the life of the church. Don't misuse that. It's a gift. God has given to the church these men so that they might function as I have suggested they should here in the church. Acts 20, 17 through 35, we won't read all of that, but that again is that passage where Paul is addressing the Ephesian elders it describes his pastorate. It describes his pastorate at Ephesus. And there are two aspects that just need your attention. The first one is found in verse 20 and 27. And that is preaching. It's preaching the very word of God. And when the, when the minister preaches, when the minister preaches, he opens the kingdom. And if you receive that word in faith, then the kingdom is open to you. But if you reject the preaching of the word, then the kingdom is closed. And so we say that the preaching of the word is a key. And the function of a key is to open and to close. So when you preach, 
when the minister preaches, he opens the, the gates of the kingdom so that all who hear may come in. If you reject that preaching of the word, then the key functions in a manner that locks. So when Paul is speaking here about preaching to the elders, he's speaking about opening up the kingdom of God to those who hear. Now, verse 31 is of special interest to us. Verse 31 He speaks about warning. He speaks about warning. And he admonishes the elders. And the word there, I'm going to give you some Greek. I hate to do that. Okay, but I'm going to give you some Greek because it makes sense in the English. The word there is nutheteo. Okay, nutheteo. And if you've heard of biblical counseling, you may have also heard it by the name of nothetic counseling. Nothetic counseling. And you can hear the similarity there between the Greek and the English. Nutheteo, nothetic counseling. And it simply means that you have to admonish. But when we speak about admonish, it's usually pejorative. When the scripture speaks about admonishing people, it's about building you up. It's about telling you the truth. It's about... Um, Finding you and helping you and binding up the lost, it's an admonishment so that you will respond to the Word of God. And in responding to the Word of God in faith and repentance, you will live. Nutheteo. It implies three things. One word in the Greek implies three concepts in English. The first concept that it implies or presupposes is that there is an existence of sin. So the admonishment that you get from the scripture presupposes that there is sin in your life. The second thing it presupposes is that it is for the benefit of the counselee. So the minister and the elders are not authoritarian. They have authority in the church, but when they admonish you, it's because they see something or because you have come to them and you see something that is sinful in your life and you need help. So the exchange that takes place is so that you might be built up in the Lord, and then that's the third one. It's for your benefit and for the glory of God. All those three things are enveloped in that word, so if you hear me speak about nuthetic counseling, it presupposes the existence of sin. It implies a verbal exchange, and that verbal exchange is the verbal exchange between you and God. That is, the scriptures are central to that exchange, and it is for your benefit and for the benefit of the counselee. So, that verbal exchange is key. It's key because it puts the Scriptures central. It makes God's Word central. And God's Word is central. It's not central because you think it's central. It's central because objectively it is central. God, by the power of His Word, brought that which was not into being. And not only did He bring it into being, He guides and sustains the universe moment by moment by the power of His Word. And you, you live and move and have your being in God. 
So God brings meaning and significance to everything in your life. You can't compartmentalize your life and say, oh, well, Jesus is just in my heart. Well, way to go. Jesus is in your heart. Fantastic. But, but he presses his claims over the whole area of creation. He owns it. And it's the responsibility of the church in the Great Commission to reclaim that which was lost in sin. Go ye therefore into all the world. That's what you're doing. That's what you're getting equipped for here every Lord's Day morning in church to do the work of the kingdom. So that verbal exchange, you see, is the life-giving power of God. The same God who spoke and by the power of His Word brought that which was not into being is your God. And you're not a problem for Him. He has taken care of sin and its consequences in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so this, this view of counseling that says that you shouldn't tell somebody what to do or that there shouldn't really be a verbal exchange in counseling, that you shouldn't give advice, is absolute poppycock. How can you sit, how can you stand before the Word of the living God in Holy Scripture and say, well, I'm not going to take any advice from you. I mean, no wonder we're in trouble. Huh? Well, you don't have any right to tell me that. Yes, he does. And so do the vicars of Christ that are, represent, that are his representatives here on earth. They have every right to do that because it's his world and you are his. I wrote a paper in college once. Here's, and I was, I was putting forward the idea of the centrality of Scripture in counseling against this Rogerian, um, reflective, hmm, I can see you're having a bad day today. Hmm. How do you feel about that? I can see that you feel really quite anxious about that. Hmm. You really have to be the person that you have to be, not the person that everybody else has made you to be. So here's the comment that I got from my teacher. I kept it. Counseling, Ian, does not involve telling clients what's right or wrong. Or how to behave or what they are to believe. So, for goodness sake, don't tell them about Jesus. I mean, that's not what she said. Or how to behave or what to believe. That is not counseling. Counseling involves helping people to explore their own thoughts, their own feelings. It involves helping them explore their own experiences so that they can arrive at a place that is comfortable for them. Counseling could involve helping them explore their reactions to and interpretation of the Bible but always, always from a client-centered perspective. In other words, there's lots to say about that. I could keep you for a day on that paragraph. Okay? In other words, you're God. 
You decide what's right. You decide what's wrong. You decide what's comfortable for you. You decide, you decide, you decide. Now, that just reminds me of Adam. He decided a lot of things. And he accused God of transgressing the ninth commandment, didn't he? Of bearing false testimony. God said, if you eat of that apple, you're going to die. And Adam said, no, I'm not. He accused God of lying to him. And we all know the effects of that. I'm still flying through this. If you have questions, I'm more than happy to speak with you about them. So, we said then, didn't we, that this verbal exchange with God is at the center of nothetic counseling, of biblical counseling. It implies that the counsel that you are giving is for the benefit of the counselee. If you want to be a counselor, be a minister. I mean, that's the be all and end all of it. If you want to be a biblical counselor and an elder and a deacon, then be a minister. Be trained in the Word of God so that you are rightly able to divide the Word of God. You are not to be a counselor because you have had a divorce and you want to help divorced people. Divorce happens, and that's a very unfortunate thing in the life of the church. But if you want to be a drug abuse counselor, don't be a drug abuse counselor because you have struggled with drug abuse, because you were a meth head and you banged cake, uh, uh, meth. That's not the reason to be a counselor. Now, if you have struggled with drugs and you are a counselor, that's one thing, but not the reason that you have to be a counselor. The responsibility of counseling, of shepherding, of walking through the valley of death, of mending the nets, all those things that we have been talking about is decidedly the responsibility of the minister. Colossians 1, Here's the goal. Here's the goal of nothetic counseling or biblical counseling. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, there's not anybody, anybody, who isn't trained in the Scriptures and I don't mean that you have to go to seminary and get a PhD in systematic theology. I do not mean that. If you can read the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures and you are wise in the Word of God, whether you are a housewife or whether whatever it is that you are, then you are equipped to do the work of the kingdom. Okay? But you are to present every man complete in Christ. That is decidedly the responsibility of the minister and of the elders. And if you are to present a man complete in Christ, then you cannot do it by reading Freud. And you cannot do it by reading Rogers or Erickson or Carl Jung or Rollo May or Adler or Maslow, can you? Because if you use their words in biblical counseling, in counseling, then you will be conformed to their image. 
So if you've had counseling from Freud for 18 years and you've gone through all the psychosexual stages and you've figured out that your real problem is you weren't potty trained. If you go around the corner and you meet with Alfred Adler, he has a different standard of what is normal than Freud did. So you're going to have to go back for more counseling. Adlerian. And then when you finish with Adler, you'll go to Maslow and then to Jung and he'll look for all the archetypes and all that kind of stuff. In other words, whoever it is that you listen to, to him, you will be conformed. So you listen to Jesus and to Jesus alone. Because he alone has the power to overcome sin in your life and renew you in his image. Now, the only thing that can do that is the Holy Scripture. So, if you just think that having Jesus in your life, and I'm not minimizing that, I am a biblical counselor after all, okay, I'm not minimizing that, but if you think that just because you have Jesus in your life that everything's going to be a-okay, and that the things that you struggled with before you came to know Christ aren't going to be a factor in your life today, then you're dreaming. And so the Scripture tells us that we have to put away those former patterns of life, that is, put off the old man and put on the new man. And the only person that can tell you how to put on the new man is the Word of Jesus. And it's the responsibility of your elders and deacons and ministers to show you how to do that. And that's not easy, is it? Putting to death the deeds of the body. You have to work at it. It's training. You've, you've, you, were born in, you were born in shape and in iniquity. That's how you came from your mother's womb. And you sinned just like that, without even thinking about it. And you were trained in that sin. So now, by the regenerating power of the work of the Holy Spirit, you are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His glorious light. But you're still you. Yes, you are regenerate. Yes, you are a new creation. And by virtue of your being a new creation, that is how you can put to death the deeds of the body. You can't do it in the flesh. You can't do it in and of yourself. You need the Holy Spirit and you need a blueprint, if I might put it that way, in the Holy Scripture so that you will know how to walk in the way of truth and righteousness. That is hard work, isn't it? Yes, it is. But it's just because it's hard work, you see, that you begin to understand the power of sin in your life and the need for the saving grace and the, and the sanctifying grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. So, how can a pastor do all this? How long do I have? Ten minutes? Five. How can a pastor do all this? Biblical counseling does not require it. No, 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 no. You get all that? <laughs> so biblical counseling does not require inordinate lengths of time. It doesn't. Psychoanalysis, 10, 11, 18, 20 years. At how much a pop? Once a week. Grace is free. 
The gospel's free. It doesn't require inordinate lengths of time. Psychoanalysis can take years, and so pastors can't be expected, can they, with a congregation, with each person, because they have to get to deep counseling. Into the id. That, that seething cauldron of impulses. Do you remember reading that in Psych 101? The id, the seething cauldron of impulses. Well, if you want depth counseling, then you need Jesus. You need Jesus. That is depth counseling because he transforms your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And he does that by the power of his spirit so that you will no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You will put off your former patterns of life and you will walk according to the spirit. So you see, if you don't engage with the scripture, then if you go to Freud or you go to whoever it is, then you might overcome the particular difficulty that you are experiencing by psychoanalysis. By psychoanalysis, but I guarantee you that the behavior that you have replaced it with is just as ungodly. That's not change. That's not depth counseling. You want ungodliness to be put to death according to the Spirit, and you want to put on the new man, and you want to walk in newness of life in the power of the resurrection. Jesus. Jesus is responsible in the application of the work of the Spirit for promising then you that. You have to believe that that is, in fact, the case. So, if the minister is going to do all this, he is responsible for prioritizing, for scheduling, by eliminating all time wasters. Don't bug the guy. Now, I say that, I'd say that with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, Okay. Everything that happens to you is not an emergency. You don't need Pastor Dan at every meeting in the church all the time for something to happen in church. The church belongs to Jesus and you are equipped to do that work. So you don't need Pastor Dan's uh, attendance. You don't need his okay at every single thing in the minutiae that takes place in the life of the church. Pastor Dan has to be responsible for delegating. That's why we have ruling elders and deacons or whatever the authority bunch is that you have here in the church in order that the church might function according to the blueprint laid down in Holy Scripture. I think I might be at time here. Are there any other questions? Just finishing up. Yes, miss. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I don't mean to be simplistic in my answer because all you have to do is come in my office in a counseling session and you'll see that it's not simplistic. But the answer to your question is that the Scripture provides the rule. That's how you know what's godly and ungodly for everybody in the whole world. You can decipher that through an accurate reading of Holy Scripture. Now, does that mean that you can't do a T. Taylor Johnson trait analysis? Well, no, it doesn't. But in the final analysis, I mean, if it helps you, that's fine. But you don't need it. You don't need it. I mean, no, no Taylor Johnson trait analysis factor would have helped Adam. And no psychologist in the whole world would have ever got back Adam back into the garden. How many psychologists does it take to take Adam back into the garden? How many ministers? Right? Because the problem with Adam is sin. Not his personality. He was normal. He came from the hand of God normal. He was good. He blew it. No excuse. Sin. You need a priest that will shed his blood so that you can be reconciled to God. That's the central element. Okay. Shall we pray? We close in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father in heaven, you O oh Lord, are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are our prophet. You are our priest. You are our king. And we, by your grace, have been called, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious light. We have been reconciled to God. There is no greater privilege for us, O oh Lord. And as we gather today, we pray that you would renew hope in our hearts, O oh Lord so that we might see the sufficiency of Holy Scripture, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of resurrection life that has been granted to us by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O oh Lord, as we prepare our hearts from the, for the preaching of the Word, that we would receive this Word with a penitent faith, that we would abandon ourselves onto that Word, onto that Word of grace, for that Word is life. Not idle words, but these words are our very life. So forgive us, O Lord, for our failures to be sure. Remember Jesus on our behalf. He is our intercessor. He is our priest. Hear him, O Lord, so that we might know the joy of our salvation and the joy of the forgiveness of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.